0: Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. Lee Uncrich is the director of two of the most beloved family films of recent years, Toy Story 3 and Coco. Based on those achievements, you might not expect that he has also built an impressive reputation as the foremost aficionado of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. How deep is his affection for this film? Well, he spent the last 10 years researching every aspect of its conception, production, post-production, and lingering legacy. The fruits of this extraordinary odyssey are now available to Kubrick fans worldwide. Releasing in February, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is a glorious, limited-edition compendium from the publisher Tashin, written in collaboration with J.W. Rinzler. Mr. Uncridge has assembled a three-volume set, including a 900-page, day-by-day recounting of the film's production, and a box of never-before-seen photos and other ephemera related to this horror classic. You can purchase this beautiful set now by visiting Tashin.com. That's T-A-S-C-H-E-N dot In this conversation, Mr. Unkrich and I discussed the process of putting together this overwhelmingly ambitious project, the stories behind some of the film's most memorable moments, and some delightful encounters he shared with the film's cast and crew during his research, including a particularly delicious account of how he reconnected Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd for the first time since the film's release over 40 years ago. Obviously, you're a huge aficionado of The Shining, but when you invest this much time kind of dissecting its production, and um, I'm wondering if this process has dampened or deepened your appreciation for the film, the magic of it.
1: That's a really good question, and it's probably both. Yeah, nobody's asked me that, and it's it's a really good question because, you know... I spent so many years, you know, I saw The Shining when I was 12 years old when it came out in theaters in 1980. And I I I think I was kind of obsessed with it immediately. But there were no resources. There was no internet then. There were no resources to find anything having to do with the making of the film, not that Kubrick would have been sharing any of that anyway. So I spent many many years hoping to see things, you know, just as simple as earlier drafts of the screenplay and that kind of thing. And um when I did finally get my hands on everything I've gotten my hands on, um yeah, you know what it's like? It's like it's kind of like when you see a really good magic trick, everyone immediately wants to know how it's done. Mm. But once you know how it's done, it's invariably disappointing you know how simple it is or whatever because it was so mind-boggling when you saw it and then you know for any magic trick there's a simple explanation i suppose the same thing holds true for movies that you can be enchanted and transfixed and obsessed even by a film um, but the more you kind of learn about how the sausage is made um yeah, I can see how – so I suppose some of the magic of the film, just as an experience of seeing the film, has diminished um, somewhat because I've done this project. Um, but I don't have any regrets. Like I, I've had so much fun um, really digging into this and, and and trying to tell an accurate story of the making of this film just because there's so much misinformation online, so many stories that have just been and have been and continue to be exaggerated Just out of control. Yeah, and uh, I'm hoping that when the book comes out, uh, you know, all that misinformation, I suppose, will still be out there. But I'm hoping there will at least be another voice of, you know, telling telling these stories as they really did happen, or at least as close as I'm possibly able to make sure I'm, I'm I'm telling an accurate story. Sure.
0: You know, it's it's interesting though when you when you talk about the allure of Kubrick's films, and I find this with pretty much all of them. There's it's hard to articulate what keeps you hooked it's it's uh, it's in the air it's ephemeral somehow you can't quite put your finger on at least i can't but the thing that keeps you thinking and obsessing about them and returning to them and and they redefine themselves as you watch them over the years and your personal experience grows um so that's that's an interesting process to kind of go into the nuts and bolts of it and
1: well it's you know it's interesting i you know i'm now and i will be sharing this with the world i know every single scene that kubrick shot that that's not in the film and i have stills from them that are in the book i have continuity polaroids so um the thing that is fascinating to me is that because i know of all these scenes that were cut out of the film that that he not only wrote but actually shot um and i know where they went um, and I know the ramifications of having lost them. When I watch the film now, I just watched a screening in London. I was just over there for the unveiling of the book, and uh, there was a screening at the British Film Institute of The Shining, and I hadn't seen it up on a big screen in a pretty long mm-hmm. time. And the experience of watching it was really kind of weird because there was a lot of what I, of course, have always remembered and loved about the film, but I was also seeing like in between the scenes, like I'm seeing the movie uh, yeah. outside the realms of the m- finished movie as it exists. And I found myself wondering, Oh, like how would that have played if that scene had been there? How would that have changed the tone of the film? And, you know, this is all stuff that like Stanley would hate. It was even being discussed because he, you know, he adamantly believed that the final cut of his film was that's, that's all that anyone should care about. They should just watch the film. It's why he had all the outtakes burned. Um, that's why he was so strict about um, making sure that you know he just wielded such control over the distribution of his films while he was alive, and then you know Leon Vitali kind of picked up that mantle after after Stanley died for a yeah, long time. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, I convinced Steven Spielberg to write the foreword for the book. Yes. You know, I, I had interviewed him for the book because I knew he had visited the set when it was in production. And I wanted to talk to him about that. And, uh, and then later I approached him about doing a forward and, and thankfully that all ended up happening. Um, but one of the lines, uh, one of the things that Stephen said was, uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here. He said, you must read this book. I had asked him, like, what do you would say to his friends about it? And he said, you must read this book. And as soon as you finish, uh, watch The Shining again and i don't care if you've seen it 50 times you'll never see it the same way again mm. and uh and i was thinking about that when i was watching the film in london because it it's now impossible for me to see the film as i saw it when i was 12 or even 22 or 32 it's like it is a different film now because i uh am seeing outside the bounds of it and it's the same as you know what wh- Every time I interviewed somebody on The Shining, whether it was a cast member or a crew member, I always tried to ask them about what they thought of the film when they saw it for the first time. And almost invariably, people talked about how they they really couldn't enjoy it properly because they were there. You know, they were there oh. through the filming of it all. And and much in the same way that the, of the experience I have watching it now, they just see outside the bounds of the movie, of the finished movie. And they have just so many memories, good and bad, about the making of it. And, and that's all tied up in it for them. And it's hard for them to just completely divorce themselves from that and just sure. enjoy it as a film, though some of them have been able to.
0: Mm. You know, it, it's interesting to me. Obviously, you are a, a, a director yourself of great acclaim and success, and you're delving into uh, Kubrick's uh, process, uh, both in terms of you know the various drafts of screenplay, the the editing choices that take place, all of that. So you're you're getting a front row seat to his thought process as a filmmaker. Uh, what aspects of that journey did, did did you latch onto most and find most valuable to you
1: well one of the honestly one of the biggest things i got out of this project other than just the joy of learning a lot more about a movie i love is that it it really humanized stanley kubrick for me mm-hmm. because i was able to read all of his handwritten notes on all the different drafts of the screenplays because I was able to sit and talk with people who worked closely with him, uh, intimately with him, I feel like I have a very accurate picture of who he was, um, both as a human and, and as, a, as a director. And, and, and those are sometimes kind of two different people. But I also understand that, having been through making films myself. You know, my my persona at work, working with my team is not the same as my persona at home with my wife and kids. Um, You know, Stanley was very much the same. But my point here is that uh, when I say it humanized him, it's because I could see I had a front row seat to Stanley struggling with Mm. things and not always having the answers or or having answers, having having uh, ideas that didn't end up panning out. You know, Uh, a lot of people put Stanley Kubrick up on this pedestal, Mm -hmm. rightfully so in many ways, but they have this idea that Stanley just kind of birthed these movies into the world, kind of fully realized, (laughs) and and it's just not the case, you know. Um, Stanley almost more than any director I'm aware of. Actually, just keep. He just kept rewriting and changing and coming up with new ideas, even when they were in production. You know, as an example, when Stanley was working with Diane Johnson writing the screenplay, they never discussed a hedge maze at the end. That wasn't anything that was part of their screenplay that they wrote. The whole third act really is very ill-defined in their. It's, isn't the screenplay. isn't the
0: book the 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 kind of the topiary animals come to life? So was
1: yeah. Well, and he never. I mean, he considered it, but I think he knew that, in, especially in 1980, there wasn't the technology to, to uh-huh. achieve that. But then, you know, I think as we saw in the you know Stephen King's own version of The Shining, the TV movie, you know, they did do it and it looked silly. And that's what Stanley was worried, <laughs> that it yeah. would just look silly. It's one thing to read it and have it in your imagination, and it's another thing to see it actually realized visually. Um so anyway, lots of changes. Like here's another example. When Scatman Crothers showed up on the set to to film his part, he was there pretty much near the very beginning of production in nineteen um seventy-eight. And uh they shot all of his scenes from the first part of the film, you know, touring the kitchen, sitting with Danny, talking about the shining. They shot all that stuff, and then um, Stanley released him for a time because he he shot not completely but more or less in continuity. Um, And so it was many, many, many months later that that, uh, Scatman came back. And Scatman, as far as he knew, even when he was filming those opening scenes, he thought he was going to show up at the end of the movie and save Wendy and Danny because that's what happens in the book, and that was his only frame of reference. So – he he shows up only to find out oh no that's not going to happen and in fact jack's going to kill you the moment you walk <laughs> in the door right so he had you know he had no idea that was going to happen and it's just another example of stanley making a lot of changes you know pretty late in the game what a brilliant
0: um, decision that was i mean f- f- first of all it, it, in terms of the the thrilling aspect of it you take away their one life raft and you know the second he arrives
1: it's the only thing that you have any hope yeah. <laughs> for saving them, right, and you and he just you just see his journey, his slow journey to being concerned about them to traveling across the country, yeah, everything yeah. he goes through hell and high water to get there, and yeah, he walks in the front door and gets killed so i think I think Stanley did that for many reasons, one, I think that he probably liked confounding the expectations of people who were coming in who loved the book. Mm. Because his intention never was to just make the book as it was written. He was kind of using it as a jumping off point to create his film. And so, you know, he knew it would probably shock people and surprise people to have that happen. Um, I know he also fretted at some point during production that there wasn't enough blood in the movie. Um, Because there really wasn't any other than Wendy hitting Jack on the head with the bat. And him having a wound on his head, and the the elevator. Well, but no, the elevator, oh. the elevator that was the that was literally one of the very last things they shot. Oh. At, wow. at the end of production, after all the actors had been released and they were just down to shooting inserts, so um, that was something that uh, that Stanley put in very late in the game. And in fact, he didn't even have the 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 Grady girls uh, chopped up in the hallway. You mm. know, he had shot all this stuff with Lisa and Louise Burns. Um, and they had finished their part and left. And then again, toward the end of production, he called them back just to do that one shot where they were, um, you know, bloody on the floor. Mm. Um, I think he, and, and again, that's just another example of Stanley having kind of, uh, second thoughts or questioning himself and questioning whether he was doing the right thing all the time. That's so, and
0: that's he, so valuable because yeah. I mean, I, I know a lot of people consider Kubrick a deity and, and he is among film filmmakers obviously but but it's so valuable to, to know that no he, this was a man that was as great as he was because he worked really hard i mean he exhausted every possibility
1: he did but also and this is another thing that people don't often know about him but i do talk about a lot in the book uh, is that stanley was highly collaborative Stanley, you know, Stanley was constantly asking questions of people. Everyone. It's like anyone. You talk to his family, you talk to Christiana, his wife. She's like, she says Stanley was always asking questions. And sometimes it was because he wanted to learn about some new technology or he wanted to know about some new stationery. Mm. <laughs> it, you know, it was like <laughs> any little thing. He was always asking questions and that included his own films while he was making them. He was always asking people what they thought. Uh, if you read Matthew Modine's diaries, uh, for Making a Full Metal Jacket, he talks extensively about just that—about how Stanley didn't know how to end the movie, and he was constantly pulling people in and asking them, "How do you think it should end? How do you think it should end?" Mm-hmm. And that's not something you would normally think about Stanley Kubrick, but that's the reality of it—is that he was a human. He, uh, you know, he had impeccable taste, um, and was a really fantastic filmmaker. But he did have to work hard on every single project that he made, and. Um, didn't have all the answers i mean listen i you know people love the movies i've directed and i'm sure there's like a huge percentage of people that just they watch the movie and they think that's what the movie always was it was just birthed into the world Mm -hmm. that way but i look at the film and i see the six years of everything it took to make it and the and the three years of just developing the story and throwing out ideas and 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 abandoning things and on and on and on like i see all that history and and you know, Stanley's films have that same kind of backstory. And in the case of this, my new Tashin book, um, that's what we're really kind of exposing as much as I was able to. At the end of the day, there are still unanswered questions because there were things that were only in Stanley's mind and he took them to his grave. So, to, give me an example of something that remains elusive to you. Um, well, I mean, this is a very obscure example, but one of the things that I found um, in the Stanley Kubrick archive, I found some frames from a shot that he had done that I had never seen referenced in any version of the screenplay, any draft. Uh, And so I had to just kind of use my best guess as a filmmaker and editor to figure out what it was he was doing And, and what the shot was. Um, you know, the scene where Jack is kind of having his writer's block and he's wandering around the hotel throwing the tennis ball. He ends up in the lobby and he he kind of walks over to the model of the maze and he looks down at it. And then we cut to this shot that is clearly not the maze that's in front of him because it's far more elaborate and, and much, much larger in scale than the the model sitting on the table in front of him. And the camera slowly zooms in on that and you finally realize that you're seeing Wendy and Danny walking around in the middle of the maze. Mm-hmm. So it's just this kind of uncanny moment that's really unexplained. Uh, and that's a good example of like, I, you know, why did he do that? I don't know. And nobody knows because he didn't talk about it when he was creating. Often when he was creating purely visual moments like that, he would tell people what he wanted and and they would help him achieve it. But he didn't necessarily talk about why he was doing it Hmm. so to get back to this shot I, i i found a version of that maze that that big oversized maze that had been completely redressed to look like it was encrusted with snow and the camera uh and inside that maze was a tiny little frozen jack And my best guess is that it was a slow. I have both ends of the shot. And my best guess is that it was a slow zoom back and that Stanley had an idea that after the shot of Jack sitting and frozen in the maze, that he would then cut to like an overhead shot of him and then slowly, slowly zoom back and just see him lost in this snowy labyrinth. Right. Yeah. That's what I think it was. But I don't. You know, I've talked to Les Tompkins, the art director. I, I've talked to anyone who I thought would know what this was or remember it, and nobody does. Yet it <laughs> exists. I have, I have visual documentation of it. Um, so that's an example of something that I'll, I'll just never know. You know, yeah. I, have guess, but with Stanley not here, we have no way of knowing.
0: Mm. You know, you mentioned the archives. Um, I, for the past couple of years, I've been working on a book, it's not film related, but it's historical. And I, I know that when you embark on that kind of endeavor, you have to become kind of an archaeologist. Yeah. Uh, And I'm wondering, uh, obviously, the archives were a great resource, but what were some others for you?
1: Well, I felt like half archaeologist and half crazy obsessed guy in the basement trying to capture the <laughs> serial pillar. you know, pinning all the pictures over the wall and running strings between them because, and that, that was just honestly happening all the time. I would find disparate bits of information, whether it was a photograph and I wasn't sure what I was seeing or an interview where somebody told me a story I'd never heard. I had all these little bits and pieces out in the, in the out in the ether. Um, and there were these beautiful moments where the, they would come together Mm-hmm. Where, let's say, I, I'll i give you an example. I have, um, one of the real treasures in the book is that uh, Dan Lloyd, you know, Danny in the movie, the little kid, his parents uh, are still living. And they were with him over in England. And Dan's father, Jim, shot uh, photos on the set uh, mm-hmm. with Stanley's permission. And, he you know, Stanley just told him, don't ever sell these, you know because there was no internet then there was no leaking of anything um and so he never did and so these photos sat you know they they existed in a photo a family photo album wow and uh i was I, I was at their house and i was leafing through this and i was seeing these amazing photos but they were all kind of faded a bit and you know because they're over 40 years old uh and i said i don't suppose you happen to have the negatives for these and they said oh yeah we do So they gave me about 450 35 millimeter negatives, color and black and white, uh, of images like literally nobody had seen outside of their family.
0: I cannot imagine how elated you had to have been. Oh,
1: (laughs) you have no idea. You have no idea. But it's it 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 was wonderful because Jim was shooting aspects of the production that there was no coverage of otherwise, you know, Mm. in terms of stills. Uh, and an example of that is, uh, you know, Wendy and Jack and Danny driving up in the car at the beginning of the movie, the whole yeah. cannibal scene. I don't I you know, I couldn't tell from the call sheets or the production reports where that was shot. I was curious about where they set that up, how they did it. And lo and behold, I am going through the, the Lloyd family photos and there it is. There's there's the whole setup of them filming that scene. And surprise, surprise. They were filming it right in the Colorado lounge set, right where Jack's writing table is. That was moved away and there was a whole half shell of a VW bug and rear projection and stuff set up. And there were photos of it. You know? And if uh-huh. I hadn't if I hadn't found the who knows what would have happened to these photos. You know, they they probably I'm guessing they probably would have been lost to time eventually.
0: Oh. That's um, just that's a jewel right there. It
1: really is. So I um oh so here's another story so one of the photos that the lloyds had uh was on the back lot at elstree and it's a photo of danny um in i think he's in one of his costumes from the movie i'm not sure uh with his brother mike uh danny was five while he was making the shining and he turned six at a certain point during Mm -hmm. the production um and he, but he had an older brother who was much older than him. His brother Mike was about 14 when they went to England to, um, to shoot the film. So it's a photo of Dan and Mike and Vivian Kubrick, Stanley's daughter. And then there's this guy in the background, this guy with a big mustache sitting and smiling. And, um, you know, in the course of all my work. Uh, I got to know just about every crew member by sight. Like I, I can look at any photo and and probably identify every last person in the photo and who what their name is, what you know what their role was on the film, with the exception of just a small handful of stagehands that sometimes showed up. So this guy in this photo, I I I never saw him in another photo ever. So mm. I had just kind of given up, like uh, whatever, it doesn't matter, he's just some guy. So cut to. Several years later, I'm sitting with Leon Vitali, and I'm showing him all of these photos and kind of going through all this stuff. And he's just delighted because it's bringing back lots of memories and stories that he maybe wouldn't have thought to recount. And we get to that photo, and he says, "Oh, you know who that is?" And I said, "No." He said, "That's Werner Herzog." You're kidding? No. Wow. No. And he's so young that you like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, (laughs) you know, he's got a full head of hair, he's got a big mustache. He's probably in his 30s in the photo, Um, and and then Leon proceeded to tell me a story that had he not seen that photo, he probably never would have thought to tell me. And that story was that Herzog was on the set when they were filming Danny riding around on his uh, on his trike, you know, and going over the carpets, Uh you know, the alternating carpet floor, carpet floor. He was he was on the set while they were filming that, and while they were filming it. One of the sound guys, as, this, as Leon told me the story, uh, Ivan Sharik, who's uh, the, the, the sound recordist at that point in production, he uh, said, Stanley, I'm not sure you're going to like this. It, so- it sounds weird that like it's, it gets really loud, and then it's quiet and loud, and, and Stanley uh, had him play it back. He put on a pair of cans, headphones, and listened to it, and he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's not going to work. I mean, it wasn't even an idea. Like, it wasn't an intentional thing. It was, that was just the path Danny was riding on. Um, and it was Werner Herzog in that moment who said, actually, I think it sounds really cool. <laughs> and so Stanley listened to that. Because, again, Stanley did listen to people. And so they waited until they they saw the dailies, Um, you know, two days later or whatever, they were sitting in the theater. Herzog wasn't with them at that point, but they're watching the dailies and they were all transfixed, including Stanley. And and how great is this? It was like a happy accident. And they may have moved away from it if Herzog had not been there to make that comment.
0: We have Herzog to thank for for one more more, more piece of film history.
1: I think that's like a perfect example of these kind of connecting of strings and stories that And and there was a lot of that that happened kind of over the course of making the book. And it's part of why it was really a great thing that the book took 10 years because, you know, it it took me time to track people down. Uh, You know, new photos would emerge and not all of them would I understand. And I'd have to go back to people and say, what's this all about? And so it was it was it was. I loved it. I mean, I really felt like I was almost like a private investigator mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You Not know, sure. you, you
0: mentioned Herzog, and obviously Spielberg was present on the Shining set at one time, and then the the Vivian's documentary that you see a visit from James Mason. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, so Kubrick was obviously welcoming of of visitors
1: onto his set that he was familiar and comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, that was a case where they were shooting some Sherlock Holmes movie, I think, on on at Elstree. Street. That's why James Mason is in his costume in that scene where he brings his family and friends onto the set. And you have to remember James Mason, of course, was the lead in Lolita. Yeah. So Stanley knew him. And so I'm sure it was just a very friendly uh, visit. Um, what I heard from people is that, yes, yes, Stanley did not like having – people on his crew who he didn't know like it was really hard for new crew members to come on to kubrick's films um and i'll get back to why i think that is but um but that being said i did hear several stories about um stanley not having a problem with actors bringing friends onto the set hmm. so there were people there i mean i know that george harrison visited the set um Uh, you know, Angelica Houston was there sometimes because she was dating uh, Jack Nicholson at that moment. Um, So there, there, there were visitors, but in terms of crew, yeah, I I have some, a lot of stories about new people having to come on and being really intimidated because Stanley would give them a hard time Um, because he liked to, I think that when Stanley was, especially when he was in production, I think Stanley felt really vulnerable. Um, that by all accounts was his least favorite part of making a movie was actually filming it he liked he liked the development and the writing and he loved the editing the editing was his favorite time on any film Um, production was when he was at his most crispy and 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 uh maybe short-tempered because he had the pressure of you know money was being spent and he had a limited amount of time to get the film done and, and, and he hadn't figured everything out. And, and so, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in production on a live action film not knowing the ending of my movie yet. Like that just sounds yeah. completely batshit crazy. But that was how he was working and I can only imagine that he was under stress kind of every day, day in and day out. And so um, he could be hard on his crew. I mean he was really great to them but he could also be hard on them and and he would be hard on them if somebody just was screwing up and not doing their job properly he kind of expected everybody to be experts at their job and if they missed something or um you know hadn't thought something through that's when he would maybe get irritated unfortunately because of vivian's documentary uh that that kind of perpetuated this vision of stanley being this kind of grumpy taskmaster mm mm-hmm. Um, And that's because those were the moments that he chose to have in the film, because, you know, he had final say over what was in Vivian's film. And, you know, I heard stories from Gordon Stainforth, who edited it and talking to Vivian, you know, they were frustrated because they had scenes that they wanted to be in. But Stanley, you know, was leaning towards certain scenes. And he also wanted to have a lot of clips of the actual movie in it. And and for every clip of the movie that they put in, it was another documentary scene that they weren't weren't going to have time for. So um, Stanley definitely. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm like wandering off so tangentially with all this, but no, it's I all love it. all I love interesting it. <laughs> to me. Stanley, I Stanley would complain sometimes about all the attention that was on him and and uh, you know things that they were down on him for, like shooting a lot of takes. Um, But he, just as often, he was really kind of perpetuating that vision of himself as being the powerful um, film director. Mm -hmm. And I think from talking to people who knew him and and having gotten a real good sense of who he was, he was a pretty introverted guy. And I think that he might be weird for people to hear this, but I think that Stanley was often insecure. Yeah, And so, you know, there's going to be a film out kind of showing him making The Shining. He's going to lean into scenes that make him look strong and make him look like he's having final say or he's in charge, as opposed to the many other moments where that wasn't the case. So people take some of the scenes in Vivian's film and, and they, again, extrapolate out that Stanley was a certain way, um, unfairly, but yeah. understandably.
0: Well, you know, it it, um, it, it like not a, not at all like you because you've interviewed everyone. But over the years, I've interviewed a number of Kubrick collaborators, and uh, they kept returning to him. There was a reason for that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you they. Know? I mean, it was definitely a love hate relationship. They. I mean, I don't even know that there was hate. There were very few people I talked to who really didn't like Stanley. Like maybe two. Um, and those were people that we're not repeat <laughs> yeah you know kubrick crew members i mean by all accounts he was a really nice guy and 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 you know so th- i mean this kind of takes me to one of these things that's on the internet that's just not true you know that's been like really exaggerated which is how Shelley duvall was treated on the film you know there's like a million clickbait stories out there about uh you know all these so-called abuse that Shelley suffered in the course of making the film and you know every i have a standing google search on the shining so i see all these articles on a daily basis and i've been able to watch over the years how they've mutated and gotten more and more exaggerated mm-hmm. um not just that story but lots of stories on the shining i know that we have a, a much more accurate uh portrayal of of Shelley's experience um in the book from people that were actually on the set, and from Shelley herself. Because at the end of the day, I think that the final word on how Shelley was treated and what the experience was like for her should solely be with Shelley Duvall. Absolutely. yeah. It's not for anyone else to decide or pass judgment on. And Shelley, in a big interview that she gave right at the end of production, um, and in other interviews one most recently like last year for the hollywood reporter and in my you know i spent a whole day with shelly talking with her and shelly has nothing but nice things to say about stanley she just doesn't she doesn't go where people want her to go because they think that they know what happened um what she will talk about is that it was an extremely difficult shoot for her it was taxing it was tiring it was um it was exhausting at a, from a certain point in production on to have to work herself self up into a pitch of hysteria, mm. you know, sometimes on a daily basis on call, you know. That was hard. And, you know, Stanley did resort to some tactics um to try to keep her off center. Um, you know, he, he had a, a few he had several um assistant directors and they were lined up to be kind of good cop bad cop with her they all talk about it you know there were some that were there to like give shelly a warm hug and there were others that just kind of didn't give her any sympathy just to keep her kind of unsettled mm. and you could say is that a, is that a form of cruelty mm. perhaps except that she knew it was happening and she knew why it was happening she didn't enjoy it necessarily but she always understood and she still talks about it now that it was a means to an end she's very proud of her performance in the film and even though it was uh you know very criticized at first and over the years i think people now mostly have gotten to uh, an assessment that um you know that that her performance is really really great and she's doing she's playing the part she was asked asked to play
0: you know i i think her performance is one of the great ones of that decade actually
1: I think it is too, and let me I'm going to read something to you that um, I've only mentioned this one other time. When I was interviewing Spielberg, one thing that didn't make it into the book, just because there wasn't a, a spot for it, I'm going to read a quote of his. He, he says, ultimately, the only thing in the story that can save little Danny is Wendy, but Wendy seems weak. So all the suspense for me is, will Wendy be strong enough to stand up to Jack and save mm. her son? Mm. And that's why Shelley Duvall's performance is, I think, equal to Jack Nicholson's. Her performance is as good as Jack's, and Jack's is as good as Shelley's. That's so well put, because
0: because a big question for me, when considering The Shining, I think the, the conception of Wendy in the book is is a lot more, it's the model wife, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the the... the Conventionally beautiful uh, wife, um, and so you think she's an extraordinary actress. But w- w- what? W- why
1: go with Shelley Duvall? It, it was a outside the box choice. Yeah, and, and Stanley says it was, uh, you know. Uh, there were many things that stanley lifted right out of the book there's dialogue in the movie that's right out of the book so he took from it what he responded well to but things that he didn't respond to he jettisoned and rethought and and made it interesting in a way that he would find it interesting and one of the things that stanley was really interested in were the dynamics of marriage Uh, and i think that you know he was thinking about that a lot because he was for many decades, developing what ultimately became Eyes Wide Shut, which is very much an examination of, of marriage and, and how relationships change when, when you become a married couple. Mm. Um, and so, I think he saw. I think he thought it was probably it was more interesting to have a family coming into this situation where they're going to be isolated at the Overlook if they are already uh, in this very dysfunctional state and being at the hotel only turns the volume up on that and causes them to shred. Yeah. Um and you know, Stephen King criticizes it because he, you know, in his mind he jacks a good character and and he gets corrupted by the hotel and and he he didn't like what Stanley did with it. He didn't like he didn't like what he did with Shelley because he wrote Wendy as a strong female character and even Diane Johnson in her early days writing the screenplay with Stanley, she wrote most of Wendy's scenes and she was writing her as a strong woman. And she was surprised later to find that um, not only that Jack had uh, sorry that Stanley had cast Shelley, which she thought was an odd choice, but also that he had rewritten a lot of her stuff to make her less strong. And I I think it's what Spielberg was pointing out in that quote there, is that if you know, the whole end of the movie, especially once Scatman gets killed, relies on Wendy. Like Wendy Mm -hmm. is the only choice to save her son. And if you think of Wendy as a weak sniveling uh, ineffectual person then how do you think that she's going to be able to you know save Danny at the end of the film so I I think that's part of probably what fed into uh, Stanley's choices I think he also just found Shelley, very interesting uh you know as an actress uh and her look he you know he he had seen her in robert altman's film three women and when he cast her he he told Shelley that he he really liked how she cried in uh <laughs> in three women that's very believably yeah so little did she know she was gonna be you know it's it's interesting I, months on
0: end. I remember reading this quote years ago and i don't know how accurate it is it feels accurate That uh, when Duvall went back to uh, Altman for Popeye, Mm -hmm. uh, after going through The Shining experience, he he told her, you're a different actress.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure she was. I mean, she had – think about it. She was young. She was like 27 years old when she was in The Shining. She was a kid. Yeah. She was 27 years old. She didn't have any experience being in any film that wasn't a Robert Altman film. You know, Robert Altman, by all accounts, was a very nurturing mm-hmm. uh, director of actors, and she felt very taken care of there. And then here she is, flying off to England. Uh, I don't know if she had been to England even before. I'm not sure about that, but certainly to to be away from home for you know a year, having just broken up with Paul Simon, right before right. Uh, you know leaving for England so she's already in this fragile state and then she, you know she she doesn't know anybody there and on top of it she's working with two really really strong personalities between Jack Nicholson and Stanley Kubrick and I think she often felt a little um I mean you can hear it in in Vivian's documentary there's a clip of Shelley being interviewed and she talks a bit about how um she feels like she wished she got paid attention to a little bit more because she yeah. felt like Jack was getting all the attention. And so you can feel that vulnerability in that moment, in that in that clip. And I think that was probably pervasive for her. Yeah. Now, all that being said, she very much had a social life during the course of making The Shining. You know, she was dating Ringo Starr for a portion of it and he was whisking her off to Monaco. I mean, so it's not like she was just sitting...
0: Uh, pulling her hair out in the hotel pulling room.
1: Pulling her hair something. out yeah. and uh, well, that's the other. That's another example in you know in in the documentary, Shelley you know says that hunks of her hair are falling out at one point, and she shows Stanley and it's like th- four hairs or something, and <laughs> and Stanley kind of gives her a hard time. I mean, he's doing it playfully, but you could also read it as him just being mean to her. But he was just, I think he's just being sarcastic, like, oh, okay, yeah, hunks of hair. <laughs> um, so. Uh, again, that's another moment where, you know, because that was a moment that Stanley chose to be in the documentary, you know, or okayed that being there, it just kind of perpetuated him being a little bit more, I don't know, of of an asshole a bit. Um, and, you know, and certainly the scene where he's yelling at Shelly when she misses her cue. Um. Uh, you know, that's the scene that everybody points to that uh-huh. supposedly exemplifies how Shelley was treated throughout the entire film, which, again, was just not at all true. I have plenty of photos of them laughing together and having a good time. And um, that, will, uh,
0: that will be good to see. That will be yeah. Good to
1: see. Yeah. And, you know, that moment at the door when Shelly didn't come out, that was at the very end of production. Like they are, that crew is exhausted. Shelley was exhausted. Stanley was exhausted and they were shooting this really elaborate setup where they, it, it took a lot of coordination to get the the snow machines going just right. And they would only have little windows of time when the wind wasn't picked up. So there was a lot going on there. And then Vivian happened to be rolling when they, when they rolled cameras and, and Shelly missed her cue. And so, yeah. Stanley kind of was really frustrated with her. Is he like swearing at her and being cruel? No, he's expressing frustration and she's expressing frustration back that she didn't think, you know, she didn't do it on purpose. So they they just kind of captured this moment. That was a a crispy moment that happens on any set at some point. And again, because it was uh, memorialized in the documentary, it's led to a lot of, um, it's come to represent the whole and it it wasn't like, it would be like if you showed somebody, uh, an animal's paw and its ear and a tail and then said okay draw that animal <laughs> you know <laughs> people don't know all the in-betweens they don't know the day-to-day on the set because it wasn't documented yeah. uh, in vivian's film i don't like seeing stanley disparaged in the way that he often is i don't like seeing shelley's experience um uh told in a way that's not true i especially don't like people saying that Shelley developed her mental illness later in life because of how Stanley treated her. Right, right. You know, Shelley first, you know, anyone who's lived with mental illness in their family knows that uh mental illness is not something that just happens because something happens to somebody. It's can happen for any number of reasons and and who knows how long this was part of Shelley and and why it manifested when it did but it certainly wasn't in reaction to filming a movie good <laughs> now, shall, uh, shall i we? mean I,
0: i'm i'm so glad i'm so glad that your book sets a record straight on that because that the when i read these kinds of uh, gossipy uh, pieces that's what it's getting to the trauma of that experience of the movie really changed the
1: yeah and these yeah. are people that like they don't know they're just saying it like people just make up shit You know, Mm -hmm. they just make up shit and they write it. And all of a sudden, because it's an article on the Internet, people assume it's true. And then what happens is then you get these other lazy, quote unquote, journalists who are writing for some other site. And they decide for whatever reason to write an article about how Shelley was treated. And they use as their primary source material these other articles that they find on the Internet. And that's why these stories. uh, I mean, I don't know why they continue to um, exponentially mutate. Because the only way for that to happen would be for somebody to say, I'm just going to make up some shit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because why else would they – like, here's another story. Here's another example of that. You know, there's this story that started going around in the last couple of years that Stanley Kubrick – got the performance out of jack nicholson that he did because he only allowed jack to eat cheese sandwiches during the entire production and jack nicholson hated cheese sandwiches and so that's why he was able to act all angry and that you know it's ridiculous um and i've seen and i saw that story mutate over time and i'm going to tell you now that the real story because it did come from somewhere it's that when they were filming one shot on the film where Jack is sitting uh, in the lobby waiting to be toured around the hotel by mm-hmm. Ullman and, mm-hmm. and uh, Watson. He's sitting and there's a plate there with a cheese sandwich on it. And probably in some of the takes, many of the takes maybe, he was supposed to be eating it. So he went home that night to his personal chef who I have interviewed and Jack was complaining about how they were making a meat cheese sandwiches all day. That's the beginning and end of the reality of that story. There was no ulterior motive behind giving him the cheese sandwiches. I mean, do you think a, a an actor of Nicholson's stature would <laughs> would allow him to self to be in a situation like that so Again, I'm sorry. I get all worked up about this stuff because I I don't know why. I think it's because I just know the truth and it, it it's troubling. It's infuriating, to to, yeah. To see that people believe what they believe and you know, it's not just about the shining. It's like our whole world we live in sure. now. People can just write anything online and if it gets traction, now you've got a a huge population of people that believe something that's just not true.
0: Well, You've given me a good segue to another question, okay. because the the scene where he's waiting uh, to, to be greeted by Alban and um, Watson. Yes. It's been pointed out, the magazine that he's looking at. Yes. It's a Playgirl magazine. It's a Playgirl magazine. Uh-huh. So, the, the, obviously, you're going to get this question a lot, and you've already had it, I'm sure, many times. The conspiracies about The Shining, the meanings mm-hmm. of The Shining, mm-hmm. you know, the... Um, I mean, I was clued into Room Two Thirty Seven before they started production on it, and so when I, when I actually watched the movie, uh, I thought, well, this is interesting, um, because it's about how people interpret a movie based on the the prism of their personal experience. Exactly. I, I didn't find it conspiratorial outside of no. the moon landing guy.
1: Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people think think they were by making that film when they were just trying to explore the depths to which people can become obsessed with overanalyzing art. Right. Well, this is a this is the question that comes
0: out of it. I thought most of what those interview subjects were expressing was subtext. And I think subtext is something that many, many filmmakers and dramatists delve into. So in your research of Kubrick and his process, yeah. how uh, concerned was he with with subtext? What kind of evidence is there of that or not?
1: Well, let me circle back to that. I just want to finish with the Playgirl thing since you brought it up. The So I I never even noticed he was reading a Playgirl magazine for decades of watching that movie I just because you're not looking there in the frame when you're watching the scene. Um, but then once it was pointed out to me, I, like everyone, thought, well, that's weird. That's an odd choice. And then what happened next is that somebody went out into the world and found that issue of Playgirl and there's an article in it about incest. And so people think, oh, Stanley must have put that in there on purpose because he was trying to imply that, uh, that Jack had molested Danny. I mean, they, people just run with it, right? The reality is that issue, that wasn't any issue that was sought out specially. That was the issue of the month that they were filming. And Leon told me that uh, Jack had it because he thought it was funny. and i guess stanley didn't have a problem with it maybe because he knew it was gonna be so small in the frame people wouldn't even notice i mean you you hardly see it before he then kind of folds it shut and puts it on the table next to him or in his lap or whatever he does with it um so this is why on all of stanley's films but for some reason especially the shining people have overanalyzed it so much stanley was hiding some things in the film I know this for a fact because I've seen his notes. When Stanley was writing the film, he and Diane Johnson spoke extensively about um, uh, an essay that Sigmund Freud wrote on the uncanny and the idea of uncanniness and, and what evokes feelings of uncanniness in people. And Stanley really took that to heart, and and I know that he was trying to do things in the film to to in an effort to have that effect. Um, one of the things that Freud talks about is number play, the idea that you know it would be uncanny for uh, for someone if they left their house and their house address was say 42, and then they walked down the street and got on the bus and it was the 42 bus, and then at 1242 something happened on and on and on the idea of like a repeating number um subconsciously feel making you feel like something is off something like there's some grand design behind life you know um and so i have i have notes of stanley sitting and playing with numbers and and thinking about oh what could their address be in colorado at the apartment could that could it be 217 you know because at that point it was room 217 because it was room 217 in the book um so there there are a lot of things like that a lot of choices that uh that Stanley made that um that were intentional. Yeah. The problem is because people think that Stanley kind of meticulously crafted each film knowing what he wanted from the very beginning, they then again extrapolate out and they assume, oh, well, if that was intentional, then everything must be intentional. So now they're starting to talk about Oh, this chair is disappearing in the background of this scene. Stanley must be doing that on purpose. Why? And then they start to analyze why he's doing that. And I mean, I see this happening all over the movie. You know, yeah. People talking about stuff. And here's the reality: the reality is a combination of things. Um, there are a lot of times Stanley would go back and and reshoot scenes and they wouldn't always get the continuity right in the background in terms of where the furniture was because furniture was being moved constantly as it is on any set um, because you have to move stuff out of the way to accommodate the crew and the camera. And then you turn around and shoot the other way and you have to do the same thing. So stuff's getting moved, so mistakes are made sometimes. And then also Stanley kind of – one of his main – drivers as everyone knows is was the photography of his films he cared very much about the his lens choice and his, the composition and the lighting very much very much and stanley would not hesitate to remove something from the background of a shot if he thought it was getting in the way of his composition you know or awkward uh, say a, a chair or a lamp appearing behind someone's head in an awkward way he would just get rid of it hmm. because that's what you do as a filmmaker. Like when he made The Shining, when he made all of his films, you know, he just anticipated that people would see the film once, or maybe a few, couple times if they liked it, and maybe on home video later they'd watch it a bit. But we now have a, you know, we now have the technology between the internet and you know digital uh, video that people can. Take a digital copy of *The Shining*, and they can pull frames, and they can put them next to each other and overlay them, and and again analyze them to death to find uh, what they think are hidden clues or codes to something. When it's really just somebody making a movie, and uh, you know, there there doesn't have to be meaning behind every single choice. I have a story in the book uh, of Stanley. I I didn't. I don't know what he was shooting. I don't have a record of that, but he was shooting a, a a shot and uh, after the take he turned and winked to one of the crew members and he said let's let the french film critics figure that one out you know (laughs) so he he you know he he, i think he he had to have had an idea in his head about why he was filming what he was filming but he often didn't share that because he didn't want it to be a concrete thing he knew that people were going to interpret his films in different ways and that was okay
0: i'll tell you something funny the um so I was interviewing some of those guys, the, uh, the the moon landing guy, Jay Widener, and the the Holocaust, uh, and he brings up the number forty two, the the Jeffrey Cox, the guy that wrote about the Holocaust implications of the Shining. Yes. So so Jay, these are two separate conversations. I'm talking to Jay Widener, and he's talking about this was really a movie about Kubrick's cover up of having faked the Apollo moon landing, and he was going through all of his details, and he says, look, I I understand that there are other people have theories about the Shining. There's this one guy. That has a, like a Holocaust theory uh, on The Shining, and he's talking about Jeffrey Cox. And mm-hmm. then Jay Jay Widener says, "Now that guy's crazy." <laughs>
1: <laughs> but not, but not the moon landing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's nuts. Listen, I I have made films that people have thought about a lot and analyzed. And you know, when I made Toy Story three, there were people at a certain point in doing press for some reason people started talking about how Toy Story 3 was a Holocaust analogy. And of course my immediate reaction was to be horrified, (laughs) but um, because it wasn't true in any way. But I then move on to a new place where I just think it's interesting that people can find meaning that I didn't intend to be there or was done subconsciously or whatever. In that case, you know, there was never any intentions consciously or, or subconsciously to have Toy Story 3 be any kind of Holocaust analogy. But we directors as artists are influenced by a lot of things in our childhoods and whatever. I mean, who knows all the all the things that go into us having the taste that we have or making decisions that we do. Mm-hmm. You know, they can be guided by things that we're just not even conscious of. So I, anyway, I just I, I like I really relish uh, reading how people interpret my films. And I think Stanley probably re- really enjoyed people uh, writing about the meaning of his films because sometimes maybe they nailed what he was thinking, and other times maybe it was something that he didn't at all intend. But, wow, that's kind of interesting. You know? in, in, in putting together the book, obviously you talk to a lot of people.
0: I'm wondering what were some of the most memorable encounters with the cast crew?
1: Boy, lots. I mean – I got drunk at a pub in London with Lisa and Louise Burns mm-hmm. one night. <laughs> um, they're a trip, those two. They're really interesting women. Um, very, I really like them a lot, um, and they're very helpful to me on the book. Um, I don't know. Here's a story. Uh, I spent a full day on Dan Lloyd's farm. He lives, out, lives on a farm in rural Kentucky. Wow. And I had interviewed him, you know, on the phone a few times over the years. And I was going to be back in the Midwest for a family reunion, and so I got in touch with uh, Dan and his parents, and you know, made arrangements to actually visit them. So I was on Dan's farm. We, you know, I was there all day. Really had a great time getting to know him and his family. And at some point, we were out wandering outside on the farm. He was just showing me around, and some of his kids were there, and the dogs were running around. And my phone started to ring in my pocket. It was on vibrates. So it was buzzing in my pocket. And I was going to ignore it uh, because I'm here with Dan Lloyd. I want to spend time with Dan. But I went ahead and just i wanted to make sure it wasn't an emergency or something. So I pulled the phone out and looked at the screen and it said, "Shelly Duval." Wow because i had already I had already spent time with Shelley at that point. And so I answered it, and I said, "Hey, Shelley." and she was i can't remember what she was calling about she was trying to find somebody and i think she thought i knew them but it was somebody else who she knew who knew this person whatever but i I said to shelly you will never believe who i'm standing here with and she said who and i said dan danny lloyd and she was like what and i said do you want you want to talk to him and so i handed my phone to dan and witnessed them talking to each other for the first time since Dan was six years old. Oh wow oh. and I so wanted to take a picture of Dan on the phone with Shelley, but he had my phone so, <laughs> so it's a memory that just gets to live in my brain forever. Oh what a beautiful
0: memory that is though uh, you know there's some some people that I always wanted to hear talk about the the film and maybe they're on record with it, but uh, I've never found it. So people like Barry Dinan.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, like I talked to him a lot. Oh. He was I, a really nice guy and unfortunately he died um about 5 years be- ago, yeah. Before the book came out. Yeah, I I interviewed him a few times. Um really great guy, great actor. He unfortunately fell in his apartment and hit his head and Ooh. uh passed away from that. Very sad. Um but yeah, I mean he was a super interesting guy. He he actually lived with uh Barbara Streisand for a while. Like he had this whole <laughs> rich life as a Broadway actor and later movie actor. Um, and of course he plays a tiny part in the shining, but he had a lot to say. Um, I, I found often I would track down people who maybe only had a small part in the film and I wouldn't be expecting much in the way of stories, but they ended up being really valuable to me. Mm. Barry was one of them, you know, Barry spent a lot of time just sitting around on the set. So he had a lot of memories about things. Um, Here's a person. I tracked down the woman who airbrushed Jack into the photo, at the 1921 photo at the end of the movie. So I, I managed to find her, and I had an interview set up one Saturday morning. I did most of my interviews on Saturday or Sunday mornings because it was like late afternoon in England. Um, and uh, I told my wife, oh, I think I'll probably only be on this interview for like 15 or 20 minutes because I thought, like, how much is she going to have to say about airbrushing Jack into the photo? <laughs> well, as it turns out, she had a lot to say because she was on the set for a long time. Stanley had her doing her work at Elstree. Mm. And at various stages, as she was trying different techniques, she would present them to Stanley um, on the set. And so she had a lot of downtime waiting for him on the set. And so she got to be friends with Shelley. She, uh, and, and then on top of it all, she and one other person from the crew who I spoke to ha- tr- literally has a photographic memory. So like she would remember conver- like the specifics of conversations she had with Shelley, and mm. like 40 over 40 years later. So she, yeah, she had that kind of memory. And, uh, uh, the other one who did was Greg McGillivray, who was the second unit director on the film. He, he directed all the helicopter footage at the beginning of the film, right, yeah, as well as some of the other driving stuff and plane landing and just some odds and ends here and there. Anyway, he, he was on the set as well. He visited the set twice And uh, and he just, again, has like a photographic memory of of everything that he encountered. So he he was hugely valuable to me, not only for that, but he was also taking pictures. So he gave me access to his whole archive of thirty five millimeter negatives and slides. And so a lot of those are in the book as well. Every time I've
0: mentioned to somebody in the past couple of weeks that I'm talking to you, they all have the same. They all tell me, ask him about this. And I almost (laughs) forgot to do it.
1: Oh, okay, go for
0: it. It's that mystifying single shot of the bear costume and the <laughs> aristocrat and I'll, t- I'll tell you what's in my mind a you know a day player being asked to wear a bear costume and do god knows what and, and he's thinking to himself what what am i doing <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i actually found an interview with the uh with the guy not in the bear costume okay uh, talking about that and uh, he's very proud of it <laughs> it's just like one day job um Here's the thing, Stanley didn't tell anybody on the set. Shelley didn't even know what it was all about and and Stanley just said to her it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I mean, people who've read the book know that that's something lifted right out of the book mm-hmm. but kind of repurposed in you know for Stanley to use the way he wants. And in the book there's a there's a character a, kind of a ghost who shows up and kind of scares Danny in the hallway. It's a guy kind of in a in a uh, in a dog costume and um so that's that's really what that is um i he, okay it's, a, it's the, a dog costume yeah it's a okay. dog it's not a bear i know okay. it looks like a bear people call it bear dog sometimes <laughs> there're a lot of bears all over the film there's a lot of art on the walls yeah. of bears so who knows what that's all about and you never see it in the film but Danny had a Winnie the Pooh lamp in his room and his Winnie the Pooh sneakers he's wearing sometimes so i don't know there was something there so again stanley stanley was like I mean, if you're going to make a choice of something, why not have it be a considered choice, you know, rather just Mm -hmm. randomly picking things. And so he had whatever was happening in his head. He had some organizing principles of how he was making some of the choices he was making. (laughs) Um, You know, a lot of people criticize the, the, the scene where Shelley runs into the lobby and sees all the skeletons. And in fact, Stanley ended up cutting that out of the European version of the film when that was released later that year. I think in part because he, a lot of people criticized him for that. And, you know, I hear a lot, I have a lot of people say, you know, why would he do that? Like, why is that in there? It's so stupid. And my response is, well, he was doing it for a reason, obviously. You know, Stanley, when he set out to make The Shining, he wanted to make a film that was different than any other horror film that had been out there. And one of the big choices he made was to have the entire movie pretty much be brightly lit. You know, mm-hmm. you would think, mm-hmm. you know, ooh, like old abandoned hotel, uh, you know, in the winter, make it dark and moody. And, um, and a lot of the people on the crew even were confused about why everything was so well lit. And I think it's because Stanley was trying to just do something different and show that horror can come out of brightly lit places. Yeah. Um, so then you have to question, okay, then why did he do that shot with the skeletons? Because he did it for a reason, and people went through a lot of effort to dress that set with the cobwebs everywhere and everything. And I go back, to, and I don't have, that. this is one of the things where I don't have a concrete answer, but I have my opinion. Um, at the very beginning of the film, when Jack's being interviewed, after Ullman tells him the story about Grady killing his family, he then asks Jack, Do you think your 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 wife is gonna be okay with this? I can't remember the line exactly. And Jack says, No, she'll love it. She's a she's a confirmed uh, ghost story and horror film addict. Uh huh. Right? Why is that there? Right. Why that line? And so I think what Stanley was thinking was at the end of the film, he knew that uh, – he didn't know at the beginning of production even, but he knew there was going to be some kind of climax that was going to involve Danny being in peril and Wendy having to save him, whether he killed Jack, she killed Jack, or whatever. He went through lots of different ideas. Um, but he ended up with you know a situation where Jack is chasing Danny with an axe. He's gone off after him. You know, what is what is Wendy to do? She's like desperately running around that hotel trying to find him. And what is the hotel doing? The hotel is throwing all this random shit at her, you know, trying to slow her down. Right. All that stuff Shelley's seeing at the end is about the hotel trying to scare her, trying to slow her down to buy Jack time to kill Danny because the hotel wants his power. Right. Mm. He wants it wants his shining. And so everything, Shelley seeing the elevators with the blood, Shelley seeing the weird guy in the bear dog suit, giving the guy a blowjob, like all this stuff is it's just like knocking her off center and like completely messing with her mind. And so when she runs into that lobby and sees all the the skeletons and the cobwebs, I think what Stanley was trying to do was uh, trying to throw an image at her that it thought she would be afraid of because right. it because it heard her it heard Jack in that interview saying she's a ghost story and horror film addict and so it threw that image at her um, that is my opinion uh, my theory of why that scene is in there but like i said that was one of the things that he was given flack for in the early reviews of the film and so i think that's why he ended up excising that uh, specifically among other things when he created the european cut well speaking of excising
0: I think the closest people will get to experiencing that excised ending of the film, that last scene, will be through your work. But I'm curious, yeah. do you think that in a basement somewhere that uh, that actual film reel exists?
1: Um, I I don't, only because if anyone was going to find it, it would be me. <laughs> I have had people over the years tempt me and say they know a guy blah 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 but none of it ever pans out none of it ever pans out so i actually interviewed one of the guy one of the editors who drove around to all the the theaters in new york city to physically cut the scene out of the prints of the film because the film you know was in release in limited release in new york and los angeles with that ending so there are people that saw that ending um but i don't know when you read the book you'll hear the whole story well a, it's a day-by-day making of the film so i have that's part of the making of the film is when they went off to a real hospital and shot all that stuff um and you know there's a lot of continuity polaroids that people have never seen and i managed to get my hands on actual frames from mm. uh, from that scene and many scenes in the film that were cut out so my book will be the first time people are seeing full-blown color images from that epilogue, um, so that's it's really remarkable. And when I found them, I just again it was one of those moments <laughs> where I just about died. Um, it's almost also, it's the film it's the filmmaker
0: equivalent of hey, we got a different angle on the JFK assassination. You want to see this of, film? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, we even have stories about. The cutting of that scene and not not just the removing of it, but the fact that Stanley was very indecisive in the cutting room about whether the scene should even be in the film or not. He he kept taking out, putting it back in, taking it out. And it was his daughter, Vivian, that convinced him to put it back in. And so he put it in. They mixed the film. It had its limited release, and then Stanley thought, "I really don't want that fil- scene in the film." Mm. And so he did the unprecedented move of uh, actually excising a scene from a film already in release, which is like unheard of.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, so all that, all the telling of all those stories and how things came to pass, are all in the book.
0: It's 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 incredible to consider everything that you've compiled over these many years. And when it comes to considering how to compi- how to put it all together,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that must have been a challenge. I mean, obviously, you're going to write a book, but you have a
1: treasure trove of these yeah. things that you found. What was that yeah. process like? Um, well, at the very beginning of this, when I first approached Jan Harlan, Stanley's brother-in-law, who also executive produced uh, The Shining, um, I, I approached him and said I was interested in doing a book on the making of The Shining. You know, and what I pitched was, you know, there's lots written out there about critical analysis of the film and interpretations, but there's very little out there about the actual making of the film. And I was very interested in it and wanted to dive in and, uh, make, make that be the focus of a book. And Jan said, Oh, great. Yes. Wonderful. We would love to have you do this. The problem is we were just approached by someone else who wants to do a book on the making of The Shining. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what are the odds of that? Um, so I thought about it for a minute. And then I said, well, why don't you, if you don't mind, why don't you put me in touch with this other person? And I don't know, maybe we can join forces or something. And so he put me in touch with the other person who was Jonathan Rinsler. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, he who and Jonathan wrote under the his his, his pen name is J.W. Rinsler. Um, as it turns out he lived in Northern California where I lived and he was working for Lucasfilm and you know, he had written all these big coffee table books on the making of the Star Wars films and Indiana Jones and he had just written an alien book. And anyway, I invited him to lunch at Pixar and we had a great talk and we realized that we kind of had to do this together because I had this wealth of information. I'd already started doing interviews and I just amassed all this research and um, Jonathan had not really amassed any research yet, but he was a writer, and he and specifically he had an approach to these kinds of books, telling these stories of the makings of films. And so, what began was a really great collaboration between the two of us. Um, you know, I was constantly feeding him new interviews. He did some of the interviews himself, um, and yeah, the, the the task was ultimately on his shoulders to to kind of collate all of this information, all these articles and research and interviews. Uh, and tell a story. Um, and one of the things that Jonathan does to kind of organize the whole thing is it's very important for him always to get his hands on the daily production reports of a film. Um, and what those are at the end of every day, the one of the assistant directors will fill out a form saying exactly what they shot that day, how much footage they got, where they shot, blah, blah, blah. It's like a very accurate uh, indication of what was shot as opposed to call sheets, where which are more kind of aspirational of what they'd mm-hmm. like to get done. And so he structured the whole book around these call sheets really uh, – sorry, uh, the, the production reports. Um, and what we end up with is like a day-by-day accounting of the film. So that's the structure oh, is that we're, oh. we're we're literally going day-by-day day and talking about what happened on the weekends and, and like let it just grow and build out itself into what was ultimately a, a very long book. We ended up cutting about a third of it out um, to get to the final book, which is still 900 pages long. Um I mean there's lots of photos in there too but it is very text heavy which is not typical for a tashion book but I I'm grateful that they let me you know make the book I wanted to make but Tashin seems to be the
0: ideal home for this book um yeah. uh, and the and the book as it is now on on sale at the on the Tashin website I'll give the website in the introduction um it's it's the book and then there's a separate volume of kind of the ephemera that you
1: came yeah up with. there's actually three volumes to the book um and th- this first release as tashin does with many of its titles especially with the stanley kubrick uh other titles they've done they do this kind of high-end uh collector's edition first so this first edition of of our project is a uh it's an edition of only a thousand copies and uh numbered and um and they're they're special, like they, they put more money into these, and it has a you know it has a hefty price tag. It's fifteen hundred bucks, which you know makes a lot of people just completely are horrified that any book could sell for that much money. But you know there's a market for people who want to have books that are like that, and they do buy them and they sell out these editions. Um, eventually, Tash and Will, as they do did with the other Kubrick books, there will be a, a much 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 more affordable trade edition, um, which will hopefully be everything that's in the collector's edition that we released we we haven't kind of worked out all the fine details of that but it has to be reformatted to some degree to make it more cost effective to produce um and not be so oversized because this this uh this box with these three volumes weighs 42 and a half pounds so that's not the kind of thing you just like (laughs) go to a you know show up at a um uh you know bookstore and walk out with easily um so, uh, yeah, it's three volumes. Um, one of the volumes is, is inspired by a, a scrapbook in the movie that was part of the story, but Stanley ended up excising. but there's still kind of ghostly remnants of that scrapbook all over the film. So we were, uh, inspired to create kind of a, a facsimile of that scrapbook. And, um, I recreated, uh, a, a, a ton of articles about the sordid history of the overlook, um, using, uh, bits of, partially written articles and things that were created for the scrapbook in the movie, which unfortunately doesn't yeah. exist anymore. There is a scrapbook in the archive, but it, it was, I, I'm, I'm assuming it was just for wide shots or maybe it was an early, like, uh, I, I think most likely it was like a, a test run of what it could look like. Cause when you look through it, there's nothing to do with the overlook. It's all just real old vintage newspaper clippings, but I have photos on the set of, them actually filming the scenes with the scrapbook and it's very clear from the pages that are visible that it's not the same scrapbook that's in the archive Um, anyway sorry i went off on a tangent there but we were inspired by that scrapbook and i created all these articles and 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 did my best to make them as real looking as stanley would have wanted the the clippings in his own scrapbook to be but that then gives way to what is basically a big photo folio one one uh, big beautiful oversized Photo folio, one image per page, um, uh, all through kind of the, the making of the film. Um, it's gorgeous and big and heavy and beautiful. Um, the second volume in the box is the actual making of, which is a smaller, more hand holdable um, book that's you know roughly 900 pages, which is the entire story of the making of the film from its conception through uh, the cultural impact. The other thing that i think is really cool and that people are going to like is that yes this is very much the making of the shining but we do delve deeply throughout the book in these sidebars into stanley himself and what he was like to work with how he worked with actors um uh just on and on and on so we have these sidebars and i i think they offer i know that they offer a lot more insight into who what stanley was really like to work with than what I've seen out there in the world. So I'm hoping people find that valuable as well. And then the third the third thing in the box is uh, it looks like a box of Jack's typing paper. And when you open it, the first thing on top is people get exact copies. I mean, they're literally scans of the original um, 127 or however many pages were typed up, <laughs> <of the American laughs> no play pages. Oh, so they get great. all of those pages And uh, I think there are only two missing because I actually I want to make sure they were put in the box in the right order. So I went through the film and was looking. (laughs) I was actually identifying each page that's shown on screen. And there were only two that were missing for some reason. But everything else is there. Oh, that's Uh,
0: remarkable.
1: And then there's a bunch of other ephemera in that box underneath the typing pages. Um, Vivian Kubrick gave me a, a continuity script that she was gifted at the end of filming. Um, which was you know, the continuity supervisor June Randall's personal continuity script that had all her notes in it, has all her production Polaroids taped into it. Um, there's lots of bits of uh, paper taped in where Stanley has written new dialogue on the set, and they've just taped it into the script. Um, anyway, we made an exact copy of that really cool continuity script, and people get that entire script, um, which also has lots of scenes that aren't in the movie. Um, and then, uh, I, I visited, uh, Saul Bass's archive. Saul Bass is the graphic designer who did mm-hmm. the original Shining poster, the yellow poster with the black lettering and the face. Um, I, I got my hands on every last scrap of doodling, um, from when he first got the job through the final design. Uh, there have been a handful of those online because, um, you know, when he narrowed it down to a few that he originally sent to Stanley and Stanley sent his notes back, those have been out in the world. Um, but I have tons of other just concepts and and just slowly shaping and working his way towards that final logo. And we made, we made like a whole little book of that. Um, I also found some production design sketches, the only ones that exist on the film, where it's a lot of exploration of the lobby and the Colorado lounge. Uh, that were done. So we made a little book of that. And then uh, Tom Smith, who was the makeup artist on the film, um, he, in his downtime, would draw caricatures of the cast and crew. And he kind of gave these little booklets of caricatures out Ooh. at the end of production. And I got my hands on one of them. And so we we kind of, it's not the entire thing, but uh, I kind of picked all the people that I thought were the most interesting. And we made a whole kind of book of all his caricatures. Well, you've been sitting on this feast for
0: years, <laughs> and, and I was idea. i was so elated that it's finally being birthed. Well, Lee, my friend, thank you so much for your passionate and hard work. It, it's paid off for all of us uh, that adore this movie, and I can't thank you enough for all the time you've given me today. Thank you.
1: Of course. Yeah, I've, I've listened to your other uh, Kubrick and Shining things over the years, so it's fun to be at the end of this project and be able to uh, – <laughs> to uh, participate in that.